Hi, you're listening to What's the Schemata, a schema therapy podcast for therapists. With ISST-accredited schema therapy supervisors and trainers, Chris Hayes and Rob Brockman. For more information on schema therapy, visit our website, schematherapytraining.com. Hi, everybody. Hello, friends. Welcome to What's the Schemata. Here we are on September the 19th, 2022, and we are here with myself, uh, and more importantly, Rob Brockman and our very special guest, Kirsty Gillings, all the way from uh, Scotland. Welcome, Kirsty. Welcome Thank to you, Watch a Schemata. You, We're absolutely thrilled to have you on board. So maybe I can tell you a little bit about who our special guest is. Um, so Kirsty is a clinical, a consultant clinical psychologist based in Scotland. And um, it seems like, you know, your background has been focusing, you know, the overarching theme of this, you know, this uh, conversation today is really about motivation and, and schema therapy. But when I first met you, when I um, was your supervisor many years ago, <laughs> um, you know, you were doing a lot of work um, in the addiction space. And now it seems like you're kind of working a lot more, working with kind of chronic psychotic in- individuals and often sort of comorbid uh, personality disorders. So it sounds like there's a lot of kind of motivational issues, whether it being addiction or sort of personality and, you know, sort of, um, you know, getting, getting people that, have, that, have, that often would struggle with motivational issues. Yeah. So today's uh, episode is all about schema therapy and motivation. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kirsty, um, it's good to know that background that uh, Chris was your supervisor. And um, so that makes uh, us yeah. schema I siblings. Long, I wonder how long it would take him to throw that in. <laughs> Is that right? You, <laughs> yeah. you that makes us schema siblings. Well. Yes, yeah. I yeah. supervise hey. both of you. I used to probably at the same time. <laughs> at the same time. Chris, like when he was still in London and, you know, it would be 40 degrees here and about zero degrees over there and uh, all that stuff. So we sh- I, I always feel an affinity for people like that. Oh, this, you, I kind of shared experience. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, I can hear when I've heard you on this podcast before, I can hear Chris's supervision oh. <laughs> coming through. Exactly. Exactly. There you go, peoples. I can imagine. I can imagine. <laughs> um, all right. Well, it's always a good time place to sort of start with just getting to know a bit more about you, Kirsty. I know um, Chris yeah. sort of segued into that uh, in the beginning by way of an intro, but um, can you say a few things about, about your background and how you sort of found yourself coming into schema therapy and maybe the kind of clients that you work with? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So, um, um, well, my journey into schema actually started pre-clinically before training. So I did a PhD um, right after my undergrad, which was um, all about um, kind of motivation um, in relation to alcohol use. And there were some schema elements in that. So um, I, I, I kind of had a long standing interest in schema. And then when I did my training and found myself working in addictions, I suppose cognitive behavioral models just weren't helping a lot of um, a lot of these folks to change. And I really needed something that was going to work a bit more deeply. And um, so I was really lucky to get to do my training with Chris and, and with Arnie Reed actually quite early on in my career. And um, I just found the, the model. I mean, I love this model. You know, anybody who's, who's worked with me will know how passionate I am about schema. And I just found that it fitted for so many of the people that I was working with. It helped me to formulate some of the kind of complexities that they presented with and more importantly help them change often on quite a kind of a deep level 
So mm. I've sort of taken that, um, I suppose, that understanding of um, behavior and patterns into my like throughout my work and and now I work in an as, as Chris mentioned I work in an inpatient psychiatric rehabilitation service where we we effectively see people who have are um absolutely ravaged by the effects of psychosis so in terms of delusional beliefs and often hearing voices um but also in terms of the mo- the motivational aspects of of those conditions so you know these guys often find it very difficult to get out of bed they find it very hard to motivate themselves to for self care or pleasurable or occupational activities and so it's you know i, I having that lens that that schema th- um therapy gives me helps me to not only to work with these guys mm. but to um I suppose to help the teams that I work with as well to 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 know how to um, help them in the right kind of way. Well, it's interesting, you know. Um, just th- is thinking about that the context that you work. Um, I, I did uh, my my DCP, my doctoral thesis was on psychosis and uh, particularly um, CBT for psychosis, and we we're having a look at the models and and so this was. There was a time period in the UK between, say, 2000 and 2010 where that was a really popular thing, right, um, yeah. CBT for psychosis. Uh, are you guys, I mean, what's happening over there now? I, I get the feeling that it's not as popular or it's sort of drifted away from that. It's still used, um, you know, and it's still one of our primary models. But I, I guess in the way that has happened with a lot of other disorders, people are starting to to branch out. So we see that, you know, there are people using um, kind of schema-informed therapies and ideas. ACT is really, um, yeah. really prominent here in working with psychosis, but also compassion-focused work, so for, yeah. for voices and that kind of thing. So I think like a lot of these, you know, like a lot of disorders that we work with where CBT has been the starting point. So and it's then kind of a baseline. Think, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But then particularly for those people who haven't responded to those treatments, then you know, we're we're trying to find other ways to help these 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 guys. Of course. And and so okay, so maybe we can put this this, this sort of psychosis type presentation aside. I'd love to come back to it, actually. I think we actually we could probably do a whole thing on that. But uh, yeah. if if we go with the sort of the low motive, you know, the motivation theme and particularly clients with you know where motivational problems are a part of the, the outlook on the therapy. How do you think about that in in with the schema lens? How do you place low motivation? Sure. So I I think we've got a few kind of usual suspects that we can think about in terms of schemas when we talk about low motivation. So some of these obvious, some of these not so much. So failure, obviously, the I can't do it. And then leading more into kind of a pessimism, what's the point? Um, but also an under unrelenting standard. So if I can't do it perfectly, it's not worth doing. Mm. We also, and then on the other side, I think these maybe be the schemas that people might miss more. Um, sort of insufficient self-control, it's too hard, low frustration tolerance. So, you know, maybe that repeatedly planning to start a change in some kind of behavior that's causing a problem or an issue. And then mm. giving up very easily. And also we can't forget entitlement that, you know, why is this my problem? This is actually mm. to do with something else. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. 
So those are the kind yeah. of usual suspects that I would look out for. So schemas are kind of, so low motivation is kind of rife among the schemers in a way yeah. and for different reasons. I mean, for some people it might be because I can't do it. For others it's why should I do it, um, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we're thinking about motivation as well, we also need to go a bit deeper and I want to bring in here um, the kind of concept of ambivalence because mm. I think ambivalence is really um, really kind of critical to understanding motivation or low motivation. So if we think about ambivalence as being like um, it's, a, it's, it's kind of it's a psychological process where you've got two powerful motivators mm. or more than two that are usually pulling the person in different directions. Mm. So I want to keep drinking, but my kidneys are failing or my liver's failing. And this creates this, this pulling creates a kind of psychological discomfort. Mm. And what we would see in the clinic would be things like indecision mm. and a kind of state of inertia. The person is literally stuck. So, yeah. and how we are, how I would, typically formulate that if we're thinking about our schema model is as a conflict between two or more modes That's that great. have competing views about that mm-hmm. particular behavior or issue i love it so you sort of strung out between the different modes they're kind of like this into yeah i love it yeah. i love it mm. uh separately i guess you know, I, I have come to the same conclusion. So I, I love it when that happens. Ah. And you talk to someone who's <laughs> come to the same conclusion. Yeah, there's the, exactly. Uh, so and uh, I've even gone as far as to think a, a fair chunk of psychopathology can be put down to these conflicts. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Of course, not all cases, but maybe something like 20% or there's, there's a fair chunk of problems. People come in and, and what's caught up in the problem is this conflict between parts. What would you say about that? Um, I, I would I would say I would say it's substantially more than twenty yeah, to thirty yeah, yeah. percent would Could be my be. first. Yeah. Would be my first thing, and I, I I think what we tend we have tended to do in schema is to, and, and we, you know we we do this in our training, we teach people to do this is to associate certain behaviours with particular modes. Mm. Whereas actually, once we start to bring in the concept of ambivalence, we need to think about actually when I'm talking to a client um, in my therapy session which mode is talking about this behavior right now? Mm. Because actually chances are that whether we're talking about, you know, whether we're talking about drug use or alcohol use or overeating or whatever the behavior is, that's the issue. The chances are that whatever mode is at the front, there are other modes behind that that also have an opinion Mm. or a view Mm. on this behavior. And I think we don't often explore that and the way that Chris Mm. is describing this kind of, and the person literally gets stuck between these, you know, the, between these modes. I think that well, often got me as well is, is the fluidity of motivation. Like you, you have these moments where it's like you're right there and then like 100% I want to do this and I'm going to get up and I'm going to action this. And then 30 seconds, maybe not 30 seconds, but 30 minutes later, the this this feeling kind of, you know, obviously gets hijacked by what we would say is another mode. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess one thing I'm interested in, in as well is like it's a long-term project with our clients working with with schema therapy, and often motivation is key at the, at the start of therapy. But would you say there's any myths about you know motivation? You know, sort of whilst, what, when you're working with a client, or maybe at the start of the client with unmotivated kind of um, clients, is it, how would you see that? Are there, are there ther- therapist myths that we 
hold? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there's pl- there's plenty of them, Chris. Um, I think you've you've brought up the first one though, um, and and the first one is that you know there's a tendency I think to talk about motivation as being a kind of binary state, hmm. where where we are either working with motivated or unmotivated people. And in the real, in reality, it's much more complex than that. It's a dynamic state that's often dependent on multiple contingencies. What you described there, Chris, about the client who, thirty minutes into a session, is really motivated, and by the end is walking out, and you're wondering what happened. Sometimes that's about a mode change. Sometimes that's also about the way we responded to their motivation. Usually, it's the other way. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they're unmotivated and then I do something and then they're more motivated. And then motivated, you do something but... amazing and they work yeah, out really Yeah, it's motivated. like that. Of yeah. course. <laughs> but I, so I, I think there, there's, we make the mistake of, we make this mistake immediately of labeling people as either motivated yeah. or unmotivated. Yeah. Um, and I think there's also a, a tendency to view a lack of motivation as in some way abnormal or pathological. Mm. But in reality, it's a universal human experience. You know, you talk to anybody who has tried to change their diet or start a gym regime mm. and, and they will tell you about how difficult that is and about what a stop start kind of process it is. The other thing in that is to bear in mind that our views about what is motivated is really heavily shaped by kind of societal discourses and narratives about behavior. So it's not it's it's uh, so the question for me, there would be who is describing this as who sees this as motivated or unmotivated if you look at exact illicit drug use for example the majority of people would say oh these 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 are a really motivated bunch of clients when they're actual, all very motiva- but, motivated to um to find substances you know there's <laughs> times when they're very motivated yeah absolutely it's the wrong they way to think about very it very motivated yeah. they absolutely they get what they want and I or think, something yeah yeah. Exactly. And I think we incorrectly label people as unmotivated because this behavior is societally frowned upon. And, and of course, we also have our own as therapists. We carry about these implicit narratives because we're embedded in the societies where they exist. But we also carry our own implicit beliefs about what motivation is and what motivated looks like, which are shaped by our own experiences. The last thing I would pick up in terms of myths, Chris, that you you spoke about is about this idea of the connection between motivation and behavior change. And sometimes I think we tend to focus too much on the moment of change, for example, that when we stop an unhealthy behavior. But the problem isn't the stopping part. The stopping is actually the easy part. Most people can stop or start something. The difficulty is the keeping that behavior change going. No. It's the sustaining motivation over time. And this, of course, affects therapists as well when we're yeah. Yeah. working with people for a long time. They're partly discipline. And that's the far more. Yeah, it, it's partly discipline, but it's also partly that behavior is governed by lots of different um, lots mm-hmm. of different factors that can affect motivation and put us back into this place of ambivalence. So, you know, so we think, go on, Chris. Uh, go on, Rob, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, so I guess something I'm getting out of this is when we think about the modes and you think about the typical behaviour of modes and typical cognitions and feelings, you know, that come with different modes, one of the categories we should really think of is the typical motivation of a mode. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that uh, this yeah, yeah. mode typically presents, let's say, detached as unmotivated, disconnected from, you know, 
affect uh, tends to not really care about much, uh, right? That would be like a detached protector. Um, yeah. uh, impulsive child, very motivated to get what they want. <laughs> Uh, you know, very persistent, very, you know, for example. So so motivation is a sort of dimension that we should maybe pay more attention to in the mode model. Absolutely. And it's very nuanced. And, and it's very nuanced. So different modes will have different levels of, of, of motivation. We're going to, I think we'll probably talk about confidence a bit later with different levels of confidence mm. about change as well. And so this, I, I think if, if people can take anything away from this, it'll be about not viewing this A as a static, um, you know, A as a static thing. Motivation is not static. And B that, you know, one of the beauties of our model is this idea of multiplicity and, and, and different parts of self. And that actually they can hold different perspectives and different levels of motivation at different times. Yeah, yeah. So how would you use the... The therapy relationship because obviously you know there's the you know in in our limitary parenting model we'd be using a lot of um you know care and nurturance and this sort of stuff but then also this idea of empathic confrontation and and um setting limits how do you see therapy relationship fitting in to motivate clients well i, I so i think there are a number of comp- useful components here chris i think the first is that being in an apparently unmotivated state is is a very uncomfortable place to be. And if we can appreciate that the kind of psychological discomfort that comes with ambivalence and really offer care in the form of getting alongside with people, attuning to that state and really letting them know that we get it and that we understand it, that can go a long way. Mm. But your thing, As I mentioned... Rob loves this stuff. <laughs> Rob is an attunement. I love it. I love yeah. it because it's very nuanced because what you get then is an attunement to the conflict or, or the ambivalence, mm-hmm. like the different parts of the conflict, and that's 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 a really deep attunement there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think if you can if you can get that sense of the person is struggling and yet appears to be standing still, that you know, that that idea of being rooted to something that's uncomfortable is is a really painful and difficult place to be for people. Because some folks get distressed about the fact that they're in a conflict, that they can't, it's almost like, why, I don't get this. Why am I acting so disparate? Like, I mean, you know, on the one hand, I'm doing this and I want this, but on the other hand, there's this and then there's this. So is there a sort of relief to be had in clarifying what's going on between the parts? Uh, absolutely. I think understanding the, the kind of much more the powerful drivers, emotions are really powerful driver. And um, we generally only get stuck in this in this in this place of ambivalence when there are strong forces on either side, when there are strong forces on either side. And I think when we can normalize that for people, when we can help understand those different competing forces and and because ambivalence, luckily for us, is a is an almost universal human experience. It's also something we can directly relate to. There's, there's, you know, very, very few of us, I think, would not be able to relate to this idea that we've been stuck in indecision between, mm. you know, the rock and the hard place, is a classic example. And that's usually where our clients are at. They're they're stuck between two less than ideal options. So you've made a, a big call before, uh, which I don't think it's that big, but this idea that lots of the cases have this sort of conflict underpinning really the dynamics. Um, 
obviously substance abuse and, and addictions is, is is one you can easily make that um, draw that 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 idea. Um, what are some other you know pre- kind of presentations where you identify this kind of stuff? Um, so any of your self-soothing, any any kind of self-soothing behavior or self-stimulating behavior, <clears throat> anything that's done to anything that's done to excess yeah. in any way. Again, what about outside of that, outside of the addictions? I can give you one example, and maybe that would uh, stimulate the discussion. So I've seen ones where it'll be um, a decision really about, let's say, whether to stay or go in a relationship. Ah, yeah. Like so that's, have you seen one ones like that? Yeah. So, and here, here's where I would, here's where I would, I suppose, differentiate between behaviors where we as therapists might have actually a vested interest in the side of change and help in moving mm. the person towards changing that behavior, and ones where we might adopt a more neutral stance. Now, mm. it might be that if somebody's stuck in a really abusive relationship that we actually do favor change and we do favor them moving it out. But they may well, there are, will be instances where people are stuck between behaviors where actually we want to adopt that that kind of more neutral stance. And I, I think this brings us into the realms of things like off where our limited reparenting stance of offering guidance and how we mm. offer guidance. Because to enhance motivation, we really need to do that in a, a sort of specific way to be quite effective. Mm. So if we are trying to steer the client in a direction of change, we want to respond to them in such a way where we are drawing out their intrinsic motivation to do so. And mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, we're doing that through a certain type of inquiry and reflection that favors talk that relates to changing that behavior. And we reinforce that relative to talk about the status quo. And mm-hmm. in uh, the example that you give, Rob, we might be far more neutral than that. We might just be exploring mm. the different sides and helping someone to 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 explore mm. the space in between those two poles to see if they can find uh, some kind of solution. That's it's really complicated, isn't it? Sides. Yeah, it's it really is. complicated. It's very nuanced. So, a lot of the theories. If you you must have run into self determination theory mm-hmm. over the years. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, this is sort of a needs-based theory of motivation, probably the biggest one. Would you agree? The biggest uh, motivational theory, or, or uh, most researched? Yeah, I, think I don't know. Uh, there, there are there are a lot there are lots, particularly in, in the in relation to health behavior health behavior change. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's certainly one of the biggest. So the, there's um, I like that theory because it's a needs-based theory, and they have these three super needs: so uh, connectedness autonomy and competence, right, Mm -hmm. as being the three kind of super needs. And we can lay that quite neatly alongside our model. But so, you know, I I, I was doing a lot of work there um, with my research at one stage with self-determination theory, but also being a schema therapist. But so so I was just making those those points of contact. So so let let me talk about the struggle, and then I'd love to hear what you think. So the struggle is that on one hand, um, that theory suggests that autonomy is really, really important. Um, mm-hmm. Well, in fact, all of the needs are important when it comes to motivation uh, because um, need-satisfying contexts are, are conducive to um, intrinsic motivation uh, yeah. and uh, uh, needs-thwarting contexts are conducive to, I think, more, more controlled uh, um, versions of motivation. Yeah. So uh, 
Now, so we've got this idea. So in my head, a lot of the time is I don't want to come across as trying to control the client. I want to. Mm-hmm. I want them to feel like this is an autonomous choice. And no one really wants to be told to, you know, use said substance or do that's it. Ex- that's the, that's what the, the theory suggests. That's yeah. what the whole theory is about. Yeah, talk about reactants <laughs> and stuff. You know, with the stages of change and you know this sort of stuff. <clears throat> no, but the you conundrum know. is this: because on the one hand, you need to be very careful about that. On the other hand, mm-hmm. you're talking about um, uh, uh, guidance, right, within our mm-hmm. model, mm-hmm. yeah, and more direct yeah. forms of care. Which is on the connection leg. So I, I just left that little bomb for you. There you go. Yeah. Where do you oh, fit that? No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have an answer either, but yeah. well, so here I would differentiate between guidance and the uh, and the kind of side of which is about telling people what to do or about mm. advice giving and how we mm. do that. Because I think what we're talking about here with guidance is much less that control and removing autonomy side of things. And more about this idea that motivation is intrinsic and therefore it's not our job to give it to people, to put something into them that we think they need. It's our job to draw out for them Mm. through our questions, through our reflections, through our exploration of the ambivalence or the conflict or the drivers or the needs behind it to have the person literally voice it themselves, to talk about it themselves. So, and I think where where sometimes I, I've seen this in supervision many times is that particularly with, with people that are quite stuck either in, in ambivalence or and more more, diffi- more more challengingly sometimes when they aren't ambivalent but the behavior is really causing a problem, that we can fall into this idea that we somehow need to persuade people. We somehow need to, if we just gave them more advice, if we just helped them to see that what they were doing was 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 problematic i.e we side with the idea of change then they will change and actually we know that they the very opposite happens as you describe which is that people fight back against that they, so, so that how would you perception. formulate that 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 process would you see it as the coping like the coping mode has accommodated the behavior minimized the behavior and you're trying to clear a path to sort of actually look at the the shit sandwich that the person's sort of experiencing or, you know, the, 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 the pain, you know, is that, is that how you, cause that's how I, does that fit with you or? Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So what, what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to explore quite deeply what's below the surface of this behavior. What are the real fears, wishes, anxieties drivers behind the behavior but you, you know that the coping modes would would advocate for but also where where's the where's the pull to the other side where's the connection that's being lost or the sense of competence that's being lost that 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 rob's describing as yeah. well mm. and i think it's only when we can help the person to help the person to voice this that actually some that ambivalence can start to be worked with Mm. So can it? So the awareness piece. Oh, like there's a mode under there which wants this, and then that's why mm. you can't change. That makes so there's an awareness piece, um, yeah. but also there's I guess a therapeutic piece, which is um, you have to do something with that mode, right? Uh, it, let's say it's a critic who you know wants to beat someone up or something, or keep mm-hmm. them keep them down, or um, 
right? Then you have you have to to offer them some way of working through that first and getting some healing going. We wouldn't expect yeah. people just to change. Is that is that what you mean? That that's exactly what I mean. I think until you have <clears throat> until the client really understands the both of those poles, both of the drivers, and we tend to focus on reasons for change um, more than we do on why I'm why I might be staying the same. You know why why I might not want to change. Until we really have explored both of those sides, mm. we we don't have the opportunity. The client doesn't have the opportunity to create that space in the middle where there might be a solution that comes from that. I've always found myself being like almost radically neutral, like that that mm-hmm. trying to 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 stay like almost radically, you know, that's okay. That's that's that side, and uh, that's what it wants, and. Despite the fact that in my mind, uh, you know, I might be thinking this is really just bad for the client. It, it, what can you say about that? Is that is that a fair thing, like to to try to remind ourselves? I think that's a great starting place. Rad- radical neutrality and curiosity is where I mm. aim for too. Where I think though we m- may want to start, and, and and clinicians might want to say, well, okay, where's 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 radical ne- neutrality going to get me to? Is that actually if it's a behavior we really think is harming the client and 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 we see like you know somebody's injecting heroin or they're mm. you know they're you know or they're you know they 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 can hardly breathe because they've they, you know because they're so overweight or you know whatever mm. it might be, is that actually we can guide the conversation in a way which gets them more to voice their their um motivations for change which gets them to reflect more heavily upon that side of the dialogue mm. um we can do things like you know we can do things like make sure that if we're exploring the reasons for the staying the same or the status quo that we do that first so that the last thing the person here is coming from themselves is the the reasons for change somehow so though the more we uh, explore that uh, the reasons actually that they want to stay the same, it opens up some room, right? Mm-hmm. For the other, like the more we say, hey, is there any other reasons why you need to keep doing this? Um, does that make sense? I, absolutely. So I, I believe very, I believe really strongly in this that if you give people the space to really powerfully give voice to the mode or the part of them that's saying, I just want to keep doing this, that actually in doing so, it almost functions as the kind of, coming alongside the person Mm. so that reduces defensiveness it builds trust in you that you're not judging or criticizing or shaming in the same way that a lot of other people in the person's life may well be by then and because you then reduce the defensiveness they're more prepared to consider well that means by by definition that they are no longer in the coping mode they're now yeah. in a view of this, which is like akin to a healthy adult. Like they're Absolutely. they're reviewing it in a way which is like uh, with perspective. Yeah. So a lot of people are afraid to explore that behavior, explore the reasons not to change it. And actually, I think there there are very powerful reasons for doing so. Mm. So I imagine you're doing a lot of like pros and cons work, like in the traditional like a schema therapy sense. Are you doing pros and cons of a coping mode and that kind of stuff? Yes, although I tend to focus with people who are already ambivalent, I tend to focus upon pros and cons. But I think it's kind of recognized now that 
that ambivalence doesn't just have this kind of cognitive component, that there's a really strong emotional component. So my preference is actually to work experientially, mm. um, to work experientially with these clients. Can you tell um, us a bit in, more in about what, what lie, what kind of stuff would you you be thinking mm. in terms of it working experientially? What? Yeah, of course. So, <laughs> well, Chris, Chris will know that um, Chris will know <laughs> that I'm absolutely passionate about chair work. So let's take the example of somebody, and and I want to I want to hark back to something in one of your your previous podcasts about um you remember Liz Lacey when she was talking mm. about sex addictions, mm. and she has this absolutely beautiful phrase which I've used many times since, which is people rarely see the light they usually feel the heat, mm-hmm. and that's about this difference between knowing I should change something and feeling like I have to. So when yeah. we're in the realms of exploring pros and cons, we're very much about trying to get people to see the light. Mm-hmm. And, and and actually what we need to do is to help people to feel the heat a bit more. And experiential techniques are brilliant mm-hmm. for this. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, if you've got the kind of really tough cases who come in, they're angry, they're defensive, their behavior is somebody else's problem, Actually, what we first have to do is we need to find where is the heat in this? Because usually that anger and defensiveness is under hidden underneath that uh, is some real fear or anxiety. Mm-hmm. Some psychological squirm. That's... Absolutely. <laughs> psychological squirm. But that's not apparent to us. So I really, and if you think about it, we are kind of, as humans, we're kind of wired to avoid pain mm. you know we, mm. and it's not something we we go looking for so I find chair work really useful in this respect because I think you can explore these kind of underlying motivations the drivers so not what's on the surface but what is the behavior the anger the defensiveness the the this is somebody else's problem what is that actually trying to convey so I will you know, maybe let's take a, a, a chair work exercise where I'm positioning myself in a neutral position, you know, as Rob was talking about. So my chair is in the middle of, of two mm. others that are facing Beautiful. each other. Yeah, so I'm immediately not putting myself in a position where I, I'm literally sitting on the fence from a, in, a, in, in that space. And I'm getting the person to move backwards and forwards. And I'm specifically uncovering the drivers, the fears, the wishes that are below that initial anger or defensiveness and, and, and the other side, you know, what would it really mean to you to come home every day? And if your partner wasn't there, what would that really mean? What would that feel like? You know, if was somebody, you know, somebody is threatening to leave the relationship, for example. And when they're doing that voicing, I'm, I'm, I'm not directing so much as facilitating. So I might be asked, I might be getting the person to repeat the things that I think are really emotion laden or amplify those, or elicit more. What more? What more does this side feel about the prospect of being alone, for example? And then I'll use self-doubling. So you know this idea about Tell me standing more. up. Oh, yeah. Self-doubling. So self-doubling. This sounds doubling. cool. What's this about? So, so this is the idea that you know, if if you've if a if you have been in a particular position, so you've taken up, say, the space of a coping mode. Um, you know, the person has sat in the coping mode and they've viewed, they've, they've voiced everything that's coming from that side about why the why they, why they don't want to change the behavior. And then what you ask them to do is you ask them to stand up 
and stand behind that chair. This is the self-doubling part. Yeah. And then and, and from that perspective, and you stand with them behind that. And then from that perspective, you ask them to look in on, say, what do you think he's referring still to the coping mode? What do you think he's really feeling? What is he really concerned about? What would you want to say on his behalf that he hasn't already said? So actually what you what this does is you put the person in more of an observer perspective, but it almost frees them up to say the things they didn't dare say when they were sat in yeah. the chair, you know? Yeah. So then, you know, if we're talking about this kind of behavior change, we might be talking about shame that comes up. We might be talking about, you know, we, mm. we might be talking about some kind of, you know, if somebody's, you know, some existential fears about dying often come mm. up, mm. you know, yeah. that kind of thing can come. And it's this, and and then I'd ask the person to to take the seat again, to look at the other side, and then to switch. And we do this on both sides. And actually, what that draws out is what that draws out is what's really going on here on the surface. This great. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna do Angry this. Angry defensive this person. Good. <laughs> Four p.m. Fantastic. So it's it's kind of like the deny. Like obviously, there's the yeah the coping mode, the denying aspects, but it's allowing you to access the yeah. the denied you know um material material mm. that's there that's unspoken yeah yeah Fantastic. absolutely so again what i really take out of this is you're you're uh wanting to dive underneath the obviously unmotivated modes and connect yeah. with the feeling sides that are driving all of that and and yeah. get in there get hot with that stuff and and work experientially yeah, absolutely. You mentioned before as well, like, you know, with Liz's comment, you know, trying to get away from the heat and towards the light, I guess that going towards the light element would be around, you know, what you alluded to it before and the concept of feeling confident and feeling like things can change. Is that is that what you meant? Um, if I'm feeling I, there's a point in trying, I, I can, can sustain this, we can keep it going, I can change. Yeah, a little bit. I think yeah. what doing this kind of work, does is particularly if you're using chair work is that space in between the chairs is where those kind of creative solutions can start to arise from so you know so solutions or starting points that will almost be a compromise that 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 will resolve that sense of inertia or ambivalence and i think that's important because for some people they really deeply perceive the need to change. You know, they absolutely get how important it is, you know, and this is perhaps psychologically the, almost the worst place to be where you perceive the need for change and yet you feel unable to do it, you know, because then we're in a situation where this might be really urgent. It might even be, you know, life-saving for me to do this. Mm. And yet I don't feel like I can. Mm. in my experience so so the person perceives the importance and feels completely unable to enact it often this dilemma will relate to things like failure um mm. in terms of schemas but also kind of punitive and demanding critic modes who will criticize the person's previous efforts to change you know often behavior change is a stop start process of experimentation and and and, and perceived failure so usually clients have a good degree of apparent evidence that their critic modes will jump on to see why they're unable to do mm. this. Um, 
But when we're talking about working motivationally, it's not just about enhancing the sense of importance. It's also or readiness. It's also about enhancing that ability. Um, so and that will change from mode to mode. Some modes mm. might be extremely confident, overly confident, in fact, mm, yeah. that they can achieve change. And some will feel it's absolutely impossible. All right. So so something I really have to ask you, Kirsty, uh, is because you're working so hard. I can see that, you know, you, you're working hard in heaps of ways to draw out the motivation, to increase the awareness, to work with all of the, the sort of the modes underneath, working hot, experientially, chair work, working really hard. At what stage, I guess, sometimes do we work too hard? And are there clients that wouldn't get there, you know, despite hanging in there for a long period of time in therapy? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There are plenty of those. And <laughs> yeah. um, Robin, I think what you're describing there is this idea, you know, I've just talked about this idea that we go hunting for the heat. You know, we go looking for the, we go looking for the fire because emotions are really powerful mm. motivator. Sometimes you'll go mining for that heat and you won't find it mm. because the fire is too small or it's too insignificant at the point in, at that, that point in time for the person. The costs aren't stacking up enough for them. Yes. And if and I think this is a problem where we as therapists struggle then to let go sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if that's actually the case, that's fine. Do you know, there's nothing wrong with coming alongside the person and honestly discussing that. You'll have saying, your res- their, their respect. Mm, just saying you need and to go out to pasture and just have more experiences that might lead you mm. somewhere that I can help you. Is that what you're sort of yeah, saying? There? Yeah, absolutely. And you'll yeah. probably part on good terms as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this also relates to the belief that that we, again, that we hold that somehow there's something we have to do mm. to spark this point of change. And, and actually we know that for a lot of people, they will make that change or that they need to do automatically by themselves often without our intervention, Mm -hmm. when that balance tips. And sometimes that's, for example, you know, I've worked with people where, you know, that example has been being blue lighted to hospital in respiratory Mm -hmm. failure or, you know, quite extreme examples. But actually that's where the heat has gotten really turned up for them. And then after those experiences, they'll, if you've parted on good terms, if you've done that, you know, in that way, they can then come back to you and go, okay, now I really need to do this. <laughs> you know, I, the, 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 the talk changes. So I guess like to add to that, I'm thinking of those clients who, for whom a mode, let's call it the avoidant protector, is mm-hmm. so strong and, and so sort of unmotivated and, and sidetracking your efforts um, that, you know, they really are the unmotivated client, not in some binary sense, uh, mm. in quite a dimensional sense. Um, do, do you know what I'm getting at? Like, so in other words, yeah. at what stage does that become a bit of an issue in terms of, you know, how long do you hang in there with the client? Yeah. So if if you see that not shifting, i.e. if you can't get to that point of ambivalence, you've hunted, you can't find the heat that might drive some kind of change. Because that might be pushing you out, for example. Yeah. Yeah. With, with a mode like uh, that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my, my view is you explore that over a relatively brief number of sessions. And if you are not hearing that, 
if you're not hearing that change, if you're not hearing that talk, if you're mining for all of the losses that might come with change staying the same, and none of that seems to have any real emotion behind it, then I think it's fair to come alongside. Sometimes even coming alongside with someone, and this is a kind of last ditch, this is the last thing I try before yeah. saying, right, I'm letting go. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, even coming alongside with someone and saying, maybe this isn't the time for you right now. Maybe, maybe, mm. maybe right now this behavior is serving you more than it's harming you or hurting you. Sometimes even that will be enough for make for to make the person go, yeah, but mm. it's almost like a devil's advocate do, kind of thing. Absolutely. As soon yeah. as they do the yeah, but you might have some traction. And that does but, feel but quite relieving. You know, I mean, and it relates to I mean, our last question around, you know, how we can be more, you know, uh, motivated and helping clients. I mean, if you've got clients that are there that are, you know, sort of really going through the motions, it is, you know, often we want to take responsibility and it can be helplessness and hopelessness can be really contagious. Is it just about taking that sort of position where, you know, kind of, like you said, coming alongside or... You have any other thoughts of ways therapists can? I love manage? some, by the way, because I love some of the language that, that you've been mm. using. It's uh, I'm going to steal mm. that for sure. Oh, thank you. Um, this is such a great question, Chris, because this comes well, up in I, I don't know for you guys, it <laughs> comes up in supervision a yeah. lot. Yeah. You know, it, with people who are training, even sometimes with very experienced therapists. And I think often at the root of a kind of therapist motivation that we find our own schema activation mm. and that we can get caught in a couple of these kind of traps here. And the first of those is I think is an expert trap. You mm. know, this is the belief that, and, and often this isn't about the kind of advice giving that, that people fall into, that more the implicit sense of I am a fixer here. It's my job to get this person better, to relieve their distress as you say, Chris, related to schemas about over-responsibility or self-sacrifice. Mm. Um, and actually, once we start to assume that, not only are we undermining autonomy, but we're also sort of disregarding this belief that actually people inherently have the capacity to change mm. already within them, you know, it was almost irrespective of what we do. I think this can also, these, these schemas also can lead us into prematurely trying to focus people on change before they are genuinely ready to. So if we rush into planning at the first sight of any kind of, ah, uh, yeah, but, as I just mentioned, before the client has really mobilized themselves for that, then actually what we do is we see a regression back to the, oh, but actually, do you know what? It's too difficult to go out. Mm. It's too hard to connect to people. So that's really demoralizing as a therapist when you think you've got someone somewhere and then we make a response that seems to cause them to draw back into it. But if we can actually really embrace this idea that the capacity to change already resides in the client, it frees us up of that mm. as therapists of that responsibility. We can stay in this genuine reparenting stance of guiding without assuming that responsibility for change. And so, you know, what we might feel like sometimes is like we're almost pushing up a hill. Mm, and mm. what we're trying to get to do is to race the person down the other side too fast. Mm. They're not ready for that. 
when they are, we'll hear them start to tip into that willingness and they'll start to talk about what they will do and when they will do it and how they will do it. Mm. And when we try and rush that process, we mm. actually set ourselves and the client back. Is, is, it, is it safe to say that as a part of that, you would need to become okay with the fact that um, cli- not every client will change on your watch? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know that 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 you will do your absolute best to to give them that shot, uh, but at the end of the day, there's there's so many variables going on, uh, internal variables, or things mm. within them, external variables, yeah. and you're going to do your utmost to care and to give them a shot. But um, we have to let go of this idea that uh, that that it will happen for everybody while we're seeing them. Yeah, absolutely. Is that fair to say? It happens for yeah, definitely. And, and the number I've had a number of um, of clients over the years who who we have parted on these terms, and actually that starts the process yeah. of change for them. Then they come back to you a year later and yeah. say, "Do you know that conversation totally. that we had in mm. our last session?" Or it five got years me thinking. later, mm. or five years later, mm. or ten years later, that got me thinking. And and yeah, it's that inherent capacity. And people to change. Mm. If you can hold on to the belief in that, it actually allows us to 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 let the person have their autonomy, really have their autonomy. So I don't know about you, Rob, but I'm motivated about. I'm motivated, <laughs> Kirsty. This has been a blast. This has been a blast. Um, really fantastic. Getting Thank to know you, you so more much. and talking about your work and just geeking out about um, motivation and schema therapy. I reckon, what do you reckon, Chris? Should we get Kirsty back to talk all yeah, things absolutely. like psychosis yeah. Yeah, and fantastic. schema and change? Yep. Because yep. that's something we haven't uh, done a deep dive into yet in What's a Schematic. Oh, that would be amazing. And it's something we could geek out yes. on. Okay. Give you a couple of months and you'll be back. You'll be back, Kirsty <laughs> Gillings and psychosis. Yeah. Wonderful. We really, that would be fantastic. We really appreciate your time. And um, obviously, it's very early uh, in Scotland where you are and sort of late in the day for us. But um, you've, you've, I'm very gracious for your time. And and we wanted to thank you. So um, you've been listening to What's a Schemata. This is a kind of quasi-monthly podcast into all things schematherapy. And if you're interested in further training or information about schematherapy, you might want to look at our website, www.schematherapytrainingonline.com. Until then, we will see you soon. Thanks. Bye. I love how he says quasi-monthly. That's a sort of aspirational thing. (laughs) 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 